नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट माय गेस्ट टुडे इज ध्रुवा जयशंकर ध्रुवा इज द एग्जीक्यूटिव डायरेक्टर ऑफ द ऑब्जर्वर रिसर्च फाउंडेशन अमेरिका ही इज आल्सो अ नॉन रेसिडेंट फेलो विद द लोवी इंस्टीट्यूट इन ऑस्ट्रेलिया यू मस्ट हैव सीन ध्रुवा कंट्रीब्यूट टू मल्टीपल मीडिया आउटलेट्स फ्रॉम द एटलांटिक बीबीसी वर्ल्ड इंडिया टुडे द हिंदू द ग्लोबल मेल एंड टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट द it global liberal international value based order if i was to call that so dhruva thanks for coming on the podcast thank you for having me so dhruva maybe we can structure it like this we mm. can start from a historical perspective where if we look at international relations uh, so maybe we can start there we we first go into the past like really way back into the past during the ancient times and then we slowly build up from there and then we bring it out to the current scenario so so maybe if if you don't mind could you talk about international relations maybe from the ancient times yeah so you know i think uh, it, it's very interesting for people who are both observers and uh, scholars and participants in international politics um there's always been this attempt to define what are the sort of rules are there are there theories is it a science is international relations a science or is it an art or a bit of both and one of the things about you know anything that's a science a discipline is trying to find sort of set rules that people follow um and of course the reality is much more complicated people are complicated uh, collective groups you know whether it's nations or states are, are even more complicated but i think there are a few essential rules that you know if you observe if you look at look back in history at any point in any part of the world you do find some sort of fundamental rules uh or of uh, rules of engagement one of the characteristics um is what is often described as anarchy right so one of the differences between uh, rule within a state uh, uh, you know is you have a, a you have governance structures you have uh, uh, what is deemed a legitimate government uh that can set set the rules and has a monopoly on violence uh has sovereignty and uh that is in some ways what defines uh defines a state those are some of the essential characteristics uh the where international politics is different is that there is no world government there is not no uh, uh nobody uh setting uh, and enforce more importantly enforcing the rules uh that that are set in international politics and so you have a state of anarchy um and as a result you've had some you know you again look at any point of history at any point in time including in india and you've had these rival collective entities kingdoms republics whatever uh, clashing with each other trying to uh, uh you know uh, gain advantage for themselves and for their people uh over uh, competitors and a general state of distrust that uh, defines um uh, that international system so that that i think is a sort of constant characteristic and this is emphasized in what some call the realist school of of thought uh and perhaps arguably still has the most explanatory power uh in international relations today so when you know when you're looking at competition between russia and the west uh in 2022 uh realist explanations actually uh go a long way towards define sort of explaining in some ways why there's been an outbreak of conflict in Europe in the 21st century just as it defines in some ways um conflict in in India in you know, 2000 years ago so that i think is sort of where is a, is a good starting point for looking at international relations uh at any point of time uh whether it is um uh that, that essentially it is a naturally competitive landscape defined by mistrust uh between collective entities you know whether they are states or um, um you know kingdoms republics or, or what what might have what you might have so so if you don't mind me asking what what would be the opposite school let's say of the realists sure uh, when it comes to these relations right so on top of all of this you have had uh uh places and times periods of time which have been defined by what some call order hmm? and order is when you have one or a group of uh entities let's call them states although they, these were not historically always uh, states as we might think of them today uh who were powerful enough to define an order within a certain you know maybe not globally but certainly within their periphery right so um the persian empire for many years 
defined an order that went from somewhere between what is today Greece to what is today India uh, for a period of time. The Roman Empire uh, had a sort of order that they they were able to define in Europe and North Africa and, and um, uh, parts of Asia, West Asia. Um, uh, so you do have like, uh, you know, historically uh, uh, places, you know, where, where an entity had become powerful enough that they were able to define the rules of the road and rules of engagement for uh, not just themselves, but for a, a place around them. One very, you know, just to put it in an Indian context, one very interesting articulation of this, although I think it's a questionable how much this was enforced. If you read the edicts of the Emperor Ashoka, um, which are you know over 2000 years old um, and which are carved you know in rock and in pillars uh, and uh, you know have been found all over um, not just India but you know what is today as far west as Afghanistan and as for, you know far south as Karnataka into Bengal um, it he he articulates in some ways um, uh, a sort of uh, his vision for an international order uh, and he claims that this this vision has has uh, uh, been heard and uh, although it's unclear whether it's accepted as far west as uh, what is today uh, Greece and Libya and and Egypt, um, and that's that's actually written in in many of the rock edicts that that were found. So you have in some ways uh, early articulations of what an order should be. Another very interesting example of of that and sort of early example. Uh, comes not from history but from mythology, and you see, you know, even you know when you read the Mahabharat or you read uh, the Iliad in, in Greece or you read, Chi you know, early Chinese texts, they define in some ways the rules of the road for international engagement. And at, at various points, various actors seem to violate these rules of engagement. You know, no fighting at night, for example, or no. And so, uh, again, there have been attempts in the past. Um, sometimes using, for example, religion or religious authority, or uh, you know, to to impose an order upon international engagement, that has not always succeeded, and very rarely, at least be certainly before the 16th century, certainly had there was no scope for th this happening on a global scale, uh, because we didn't have the level of global integration uh, or global engagement. So mostly it was regional order, and this can, for by contrast, be defined. Some define it as liberal liberalism, which is. Uh, not that states that anarchy that goes away, but that anarchy can be better managed through engagement between states. So that I think is a sort of uh, a sort of a secondary school of thought. And uh, for many, you know, at least recently, you've often had debate between those two: which one is actually more powerful, which one has more explanatory power in terms of international behavior. So, so when we talk about uh, the liberal value, liberal order, or the liberal, as they call liberal values-based order, would would it be then safe to assume that uh, how it is presented today in the world, in the larger discourse, is a very Eurocentric vision? And actually, if we talk about these orders, uh, they, they predate uh, what is understood today as a value-based order? So I think well, for much, I, I think before we get to that, I think there's there a couple of important steps that I think a lot of uh, particularly Western uh, and European analyses sort of often overlook con rather conveniently. Um, you know, in, in some ways, the modern international or mo modern sense of international order was based on a few things. One was a sense of statehood, which came about, it's often referred to as the Westphalian uh, state. This was came up with the treaties of Westphalia in 1648, defined in some ways uh, sovereignty and created a legal precedent for, for sovereignty. And in some ways that still is is the kind of defining the definition of sovereignty that we use today and, and not just in Europe but but more broadly. But I think the other step that people often overlook is that you had a colonial order for many years for you know essentially between 1492 and uh, 1945 uh, that you had a largely European dominated colonial order that for whom uh, some of these rules uh, you know of, of sovereignty and liberalism did not apply to to non-colonial powers and then you know, India, of course, being uh, on the receiving end of that. Um, so nobody was was very uh, concerned about um, uh, about Indian um, sovereignty or uh, African sovereignty. Or, or uh, so so that you know, in some ways, you again until 1945, certainly and arguably even a little bit after, you really had a colonial international order that defined, which was which was quite illiberal in many ways. 
the I think where things changed a little bit was in 1945, um, where in the with the ashes of World War II, an attempt was made initially by the U.S., U.K., and Russia and the Soviet Union, the big three, to define what would be a post World War II order. What would that look like? And that was what led to the United Nations. Uh, and the United Nations initially, I think people forget this, was a coalition of, of the winning side of, of World War II. It led to their engagement in the Bretton Woods uh, conferences. And again, people forget this, but the Soviet Union actually participated in the Bretton Woods conference. Um, so it, this involved including the Soviet Union in, in the uh, division of Germany and Austria, for example, after World War II. What a, a bit of a change happened between 1945 and 1947, and I think this is crucial again and often overlooked, which is suddenly from this idea of a single kind of a slightly utopian view that the winners of World War II would create an international order that would be acceptable to everyone, uh, arose, uh, the in inevitable competition came out of this. And suddenly you saw essentially a break with the Soviet Union between the East and West. Uh, and if you see the institutions after 1947 suddenly excluded the Soviet Union. Uh, and you had two very different visions being pushed, one by the US, UK, France, other Western powers, and one by the Soviet of a sort of international communist power. And even early on in 1940s, you start seeing competition between them in you know, the Soviet supporting communist movements in Greece, Turkey, China, North Korea, what, what became North Korea. Um, uh, and uh, essentially this divided world came came about, the Cold War, which defined the Cold War. This was when India became independent. And so India found in this world that it had it, it you had two poles defining very competing orders. And India tried to define as a newly independent country, a sort of a different way of looking at the world, one that maximized benefits with both of these orders, uh, ideally. Um, so you had engagement with the West, uh, India remained part of the Commonwealth, engaged with the West in, in many ways, uh, and particularly for the first decade of independence. But then after 1955, 1956, also engaged quite significantly with the Soviet Union, particularly after Stalin's death, and that opened up some possibilities there. But also try to articulate, in, you know, at Bandung and elsewhere, what would a decolonized world worldview look like, right? So this, I think, was is the backdrop. And again, this led to, while you saw a more liberal, and I'll get into the definitions because I think they're, they're, they're competing definitions about what the liberal part of the liberal international order means um, and sometimes contradictory meanings there. But while you had these two different visions, uh, in some ways it led to, uh, again, a great, great deal of liberalism in the developing world. So you saw, for example, the US and Europe backing uh, very autocratic and very illiberal regimes in places like Congo, in Latin America, uh, in you know Pakistan over India uh, for for many of those years, um, uh, in Southeast Asia where against many communist movements were very brutally oppressed. So so I think you you that that is all, again often overlooked. Now this let me fast forward a little bit to what happened after to, to everyone's surprise after the Cold War. Suddenly you had one of those visions of international order collapse, which was the Soviet uh, vision. And suddenly for this moment, you know, 15, 20 years, you had this period where the US, US alone was in a position to uh, articulate and impose an international order on the rest of the world, which is defined, uh, some call it a liberal international order. Now, the, the, again, this is where it gets tricky. That liberal in liberal international order actually means three very different things. <laughs> One, it means uh, liberalism as in creating space uh, sort of international relations liberalism. Let's invest in institutions, uh, engagement to minimize conflict between major powers. So that's that's one definition. But a second is an economic definition, which is let's let's have a global trading system that is liberal in that sense and and uh, leads to interdependence that would mitigate international competition. The third, and from India's point of view, sometimes the most problematic, meant a liberalism that actually. Uh, uh, got into the domestic politics of other countries and maybe undermined, as they saw it, their sovereignty. And this led to a push, for example, for responsibility to protect uh, the sort of the justification for um, uh, for uh, intervention in places like Iraq, uh, later Libya, 
and other places, uh, sometimes which had very counter, uh, you know, had, had results that were unintended and which actually arguably sometimes cause more harm than, than help. So I think there was sometimes confusion as to what does that liberal in the international order mean? And different people, including in the US, including in the West, have emphasized different aspects of that liberal uh, at different points of time. Now, my final point on this is, I think what we have seen now over the past decade or so, and we could say, I, I would say 2008 was the, the changing point because 2008 saw the global financial crisis. It saw the Russian uh, intervention in Georgia, the Russian uh, war in Georgia. Uh, it saw peak oil uh, prices. It saw Beijing, the Beijing Olympics, and it saw, I think, quite uh, overlooked uh, for the first time, uh, Chinese military presence in the Indian Ocean. And collectively, I think 2008 in some ways can be looked at as a turning point when this uh, liberal US-led international order was no longer uncontested. Uh, and now you you actually had a moment where other powers, in, the, in different ways and for different reasons, I mean, it's not, not the same, China, Russia, India in very different ways, uh, actually uh, uh, objected to many aspects of this international order. Uh, and said, you know, look, we we need better representation. Uh, you can't you can't have the U.S. and the the West and U.S. allies defining the rules for everyone. Um, so some of it was about representation. I think for India, Brazil, South Africa, it was more about that than it was about the principles that were under. Uh, say for China and Russia, it was more about some of the substan sub uh, substantive aspects of it. But I think uh, for the first time again, we've returned to a more contested international order after this anomaly. Uh, and one could argue, again, if you look back historically, the period between 1991 and 2008 was really in some ways a historical anomaly where you had a single international power that was able to impose uh, a vision of international order on, on much of the rest of the world. So so would it be fair to assume that that the vision that is envisaged, let's say, from how you've explained the US-led liberal uh, international order and... Uh, because uh, you you mentioned about having a say and the the american veto or a disproportionate say that the americans had in the global discourse so would that be in any way different from what let's say the united nations has envisaged so the the un has morphed as well right so the un started off as a as a coalition uh, during world war 2 itself um, and was a coalition essentially of the allies uh, that 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 won the war right? that included you know the U.S. Uh, U.K. Soviet Union, uh, in some ways that defines the P5 in the UN today. Uh, they all five happen to be on the winning side of that of, of World War II. Um, during the Korean War, it was actually UN forces that were deployed against the Soviet Union. It was not U.S. I mean, it was U.S. led obviously, but it was technically under a UN flag that that uh, the Korean War took place. But it has morphed in some ways into something very different, which is today it is in some ways the only global assembly where all uh, at least recognized countries are represented there. And it is a forum for uh, deliberation and engagement of all what are supposed to be, again, all sovereign recognized countries. Again, they're, they're, it's, it's a bit fuzzy because countries like Palestine and Taiwan are not, not represented there. Um, but, but by and large. So in some ways, it no longer is really representative of an international order. It is a convening venue for sovereign states, uh, recognize sovereign states. Um, and so no longer really represent, you know, there, there are no, you, you know, if you can reach consensus at the UN, that represents the will of the international community, I, I suppose, uh, both the General Assembly or, or the UN Security Council. But uh, again, it's not, it, it, it doesn't have the same kind of, um, it, it, in, in, the way I defined the sort of international order before uh, as uh, a sort of, set of rules and principles that are enforceable. Uh, I'm not sure the UN is today the best vehicle for it. It doesn't really make sense as a defining uh, as a defining actor that, that, that defines the international order. Now, the classic uh, uh, version that I used to hear all the time when I would read a lot of essays or, or, or hear foreign policy discussions is that, look, the world will always have a global policeman. 
somewhere down the line even if you look at the history of the of various kingdoms somewhere down the line you know different kingdoms have controlled or have had more or less different varying levels of control obviously you know technology was different in the in the and in the past in comparison to what we have today not just in terms of weaponry but even in terms of uh, information dissemination but in, in such a scenario where we look at uh, this whole argument of a global policeman where where do you think the world is heading because obviously it was uh, it was held for a long time that america has pretty much been the global policeman uh, and uh, do you think that that position of america as a global pos- policeman is 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 changing now so uh, yeah so short answer is yes um again i think uh, the the period the post cold war immediate post cold war cold war period was an anomaly in that there was only a single one but for most of history there have been multiple uh and and they have often sometimes cooperated with each other uh you had this again a little bit in the 19th century where you had uh, what was called the concert of europe where the the major colonial powers actually cooperated chose to cooperate with each other fair amount and cr- retain a balance of power at other times they have actively contested with each other during the cold war and you know between the uk and france uh, until napoleon um so uh you again you've had multiple uh, i think it's we, we may not we may not at least soon ever go back to a period where there's a single um unipolar uh world policeman but uh i think you know we are already at a stage where there are multiple ones and they will uh often contest with each other and some will be more influential in certain regions over others so we will see for example already you see china and the us competing in some ways in um many parts of the developing world to offer global public goods um right now competing in positive terms largely but possibly soon competing in negative terms um india can play a role in at least in its near periphery uh, and it has in, at times in the past but i think now has the resources to do so on a more sustained basis so uh you know whether it is again in its near neighborhood or in the indian ocean region more largely uh india does have some capabilities to play that role um europe has a, a role to play uh again in its in its near abroad um in its in north africa and places like that and it it does do that um and maybe we'll see other other actors emerging i think the question marks about russia particularly after the ukraine war whether even in, in its own periphery um and again as i pointed out in in a at a time when the us has troops in lithuania and turkey has troops in azerbaijan and uh, china has security forces in tajikistan so places that russia considered its own um near abroad you have other actors playing a role um so uh, i'm not so sure about you know uh, about russia but certainly the, the us and china very almost certainly india at least in its near abroad um europe in its near abroad Uh, are able to play certainly uh, some of those functions and maybe let's see what happens in the future so uh, i mean uh, if if i was to understand from from your point of view that while we are in this us led international liberal international order and uh, it is now being challenged through multiple countries in their own way through 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 their own methods but it still is uh, a significant player whether we like it or not in in the global discourse now now from the perspective of india in your view what 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 are maybe uh, the opportunities that we have in this current situation and uh, what are what are the threats then mm-hmm. in that case that we could have in such a scenario where whether you know whether people like it or not america is still a major player in the world yeah so so look i i think um i i mean i'm i'm of the view that i think that moment has passed uh that that i i feel like a lot of people in washington where i where i'm based still cling on to this view that it can go back to a pre 2008 world where the us did have that uh ability uh to to play a sort of unipolar role um and, and by the way I, i'll give you one example i i would say actually the last the very last act of us unipolarity involved india uh which was in late 2008 after the global just months after the global weeks after the global financial crisis uh there was this issue of india being uh included in the um uh, nuclear supply given a waiver by the nuclear suppliers group to engage in civilian nuclear commerce 
And this required all of the members of the nuclear suppliers group, 40 plus members, to uh, grant India that veto by unanimity. Uh, at the last minute, China held out. And the US, in fact, lobbied China heavily. By some reports, uh, George W. Bush called Hu Jintao uh, to, uh, about this on this matter. And essentially, China uh, at, uh, relented at the last minute. And I don't see, you know, I, I mentioned that because I, I don't see that happening today on, on, on an issue of that significance that the U.S. could put, essentially isolate China and uh, get China to relent on something of, of that significance. So in some ways, I think the last act, that was perhaps the last act of true American unipolarity. Uh, but but you know, bring it back, I, I think we're, we're past that moment. Uh, not everybody has uh, necessarily appreciated it or woken up to it. Not, certainly not everybody in the U.S. Uh, to be honest, I think people in the U.S. government understand it much more than people who are outside of government, including in the media and in uh, think tanks. Um, but I think we are we are past that moment of, of uh, unfettered uh, American unipolarity. Um, now, what 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 opportunities does that bring up? Uh, you know, I think the interesting thing has happened. Um, within the U.S. alliance network, which is the U.S., Europe, by which I define both the EU and, and NATO uh, country, member states, uh, uh, North America, Canada, uh, but also Japan, Australia, South Korea. Within this world that I've defined, which still accounts for a very large amount of the global economy, um, the U.S. is today arguably more powerful than maybe it has ever been, <laughs> or certainly that is, is essentially the power balance has shifted from Europe to the US. And we've seen this in the Ukraine war, where I think the absence of the EU, the you know European ability to support Ukraine on its own, on their own, um, that they really need the US, US support uh, for, you know, whether it's arms, uh, whether it's uh, uh, economic assistance. So the US is in some ways more, pivotal to that world, its U.S. alliance network, than ever before. On the other hand, the U.S. has actually lost seated ground in the rest of the world, outside of that alliance bubble. Um, and it, that world has become much more competitive. Uh, and China especially, and on some issues in some places, Russia, uh, are filling that void. Uh, uh, have occupied some of that space. We saw that uh, Russia in, in Syria, for example. Uh, where uh, the U.S., after not having a very major significant force there, uh, Russia essentially changed the, the direction of that conflict. We're seeing this with China and Africa, uh, to some extent China and Southeast Asia, where the U.S. Uh, relative withdrawal has, has created that space. Now, when, when you look out from that world, uh, that, that perspective, India stands out as a country that is not an ally. It's not going to be part of that alliance network that I mentioned. Uh, but is a partner, and which on more issues, although there are continuing divergences on some issues, um, uh, on, on many of the big issues, actually, they see more eye to eye than, than I think people appreciate. So, you know, if the intention is for the U.S. to, again, which is, which is becoming more, in some ways, more significant, uh, again, within a very much narrower world, but is in other places becoming... It's, it's seeing its influence decline, relative influence decline. In that world, India stands out as a very critical partner. And in some ways, what we have seen, whether it's India at the G20, whether it's through the Quad, uh, whether it is through the I2U2 in, in the West Asia, so partnership with the UAE and Israel, is India increasingly playing that role of preferred partner for the US outside of its cozy alliance network. And that opens up opportunities for India. It opens up economic opportunities uh, for, for trade and economic interlinkages. It, it opens up technological opportunities for India. It, security, there's, there's now very robust security cooperation going on. Um, and this should help facilitate India's rise. So when India looks at the world, at a, again, this more contested world, uh, and one of its major competitors, China, is now five, you know, sitting on India's border, and has five times, almost five times the economy of India and five times the resources, roughly speaking. Um, India see, can see in this partnership with the US and its allies, Japan, Europe, um, Canada, Australia, um, sees, it, it's a very important uh, opportunity to advance India's own positions. Now, the, 
the problem here seems to be where, where uh, an average person on the street they they have never understood uh, <laughs> and i'm glad you explained what actually the liberal international order is because everybody seems to have no understanding of what actually liberal international order is what anybody stands for and it has always been this oh america decides and things happen but but so now let's say we are in what is loosely called uh, a multipolar world where there is no one center of power there are different players who are going to uh, you know deal with different entities as individual units where in that case you know, you know there was a time where let's say people would uh, uh have a trade agreement let's say hypothetically i'm not saying it will or it will not with the european union as an entity by itself where eu has agreements but the way the world is going you might not have that you might have even individual members of the european union try, you know cracking deals with different people india india having a separate deal with france india having a separate deal with germany america canada for example now you are in this uh, multipolar world uh but then if if i was to say were we ever in a non multipolar world in this like a lot of times as a layman when i look at foreign policy or when i look at governments dealing with each other it is quite clear that it if it suits both sides all values kind of sometimes are kept aside and they just go there and do it it's it sounds very much like a transaction so so what exactly uh, is the essence of this multipolar world does the multipolar world by itself also stand for something so so no it i mean it's defined by its constituent parts right um so uh but you know have we ever not been a multipolar world i mean i would say uh, one could argue uh, i would say the only period in my view that that i think was not was uh, roughly 1945 to 2008 where first you had essentially a bipolar world where a, a lot of things again it, it, it didn't mean that the US and Soviet Union was supreme but essentially there were um uh, not a lot could happen on issues that mattered for either of those parties without one or the other backing uh backing it right so you know whether it was uh, Hungary and the Czechoslovakia trying to have a more you know autonomous uh uh autonomous politics and foreign policy and the soviets crushed that in in 1950 uh, 1956 and 1968 um or the us doing similar things in latin america or you know so so i mean that really was a bipolar world although you know again we sometimes overlook how autonomous france and china and others were in that in india included in that time um but uh, i mean i think ultimately when it comes down to it on again on issues that matter to the superpowers uh, they were if one did not fill the void uh, the other one did and on and again at times the, the the two did cooperate on on certain issues um again the period after between 1991 and and 2008 arguably was a unipolar world um but i think we're returning to a place where in some ways was much more natural and we saw in, in at other points of uh, time in history where where you have multiple actors quite autonomous quite different views of of the world who are all trying to shape the environment around them um and the us and china today are the two most active and and most capable um but i think in a second tier you have in different ways european union japan russia india uh and others and, and on a regional level you know countries like turkey iran israel in 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 west asia um other countries in other parts of the world who are who are quite active as well um so it's not just relegated to, to those handful of countries um uh, but but that being said uh, i think we you know we're we're returning to a multipolar world which will by you know be uh, quite transactional in many ways as you pointed out um where there will be double standards i mean so for example uh, you know based specifically india has a relationship with russia uh, it's a long standing relationship um uh, often poorly understood or appreciated uh, in the west uh, but one that you know continues to result in significant indian dependence on russia for uh on for defense um but also now at least short term requirements on terms of energy food fertilizers um uh and also sort of political you know that that is india does not want to see a russia china relationship that is too cozy so you know i think i think that 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 you know india has that re- relationship it's a, there, there are reasons for it there's a logic behind it there's a history behind it 
similarly, the U.S. has relations with many countries that are quite illiberal, uh, and again, for their own reasons. Um, Europe does, you know, Germany, the German chancellor just went to China, uh, included a major trade delegation uh, along um, uh, that, that accompanied him. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the countries are do engage in a certain transactionalism uh, everywhere. And that's, just, again, a, in some ways, a sort of essential rule. Everyone looks out for their own interests. That can be overlaid by a set of values defined by the, those countries. And China's values are very different from Russia's values and are very different from India's values and are different from the U.S.'s values. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it, it is up to each country then to articulate the U.S. has its own vision for the world. Um, Europe has its vision for the world. India has its vision for the world. Uh, and those are domestically sometimes contested. Um, I actually, one thing I should have mentioned earlier is today the domestic, uh, you know, one, an another reason for declining U.S. international influence is not just the international context, but also the domestic context today, both on the right and in the left politically in, in the U.S. There are there are strident voices that say the U.S. should not be taking on more responsibility in the world. It should not be, be uh, more generous in its trade uh, agreements with other countries. It should not be making open-ended security commitments to, to other countries. Um, and so I think that, that that context has really changed. I, I would hesitate to call it isolationism uh, because I think that, that goes too far. But there's certainly a sort of more retrenchment, uh, a sort of a philosophy of re retrenchment that is much more um, uh, active today than it was 20 years ago. Can can we call it selective isolationism as a as in a horses for courses kind of a thing? Where it suits me, I'm isolationist. Where it doesn't suit me, I will become interventionist. No, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't. I think it's it's a very um, uh, th there are people who genuinely believe this that the terms of American engagement that define the ninety you know the last the, the unipolar world largely um, have not been to the benefit net benefit of America. I mean that 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 the, there is a strong view of that. Whether again it is on on economic issues, on immigration, on uh, alliances, um, and so I think you know we will see that define. I mean, I'm not saying that that will be the the overwhelming um, uh, uh, philosophy driving the U.S. in the future, but it was now part of the discourse in a, in a way that it wasn't. And I think you know it, it's interesting the the way you frame that question. It made it seem like there's a single uh, view that is sort of you know uh, very calculated and it's sort of we will make these decisions uh, when they suit our interests or not. When, you know, I think the reality of democratic politics, and we see this in India, we see this in the US, is often you have multiple points of view, multiple actors who have very different philosophies and something, you know, from the kitchen, something comes out, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mix. So, uh, you know, one of the things I, I find, the, there's a big uh, disjuncture I find between sometimes the commentary I see about the US in India and what I sometimes witness firsthand, which is in, in, in sometimes the commentary implies that there is a much more uh, careful, considered, strategic direction to US policy, when in fact, it's actually much more chaotic and much more, um, the, the, it's much more disorganized than I think a lot of people uh, fully appreciate. Yeah, that that's very interesting. So you mentioned how it's portrayed in India. Now, something that changed significantly uh, let's say after the internet age and especially post 2008-9 with the advent of social media is that before that governments would make statements they would make statements through your uh, you know regular media channels whether it's state-owned media or private media in the case of multiple nations but now every politician every consulate in that sense Governments are on social media and, and you seem to have constant, uh, I don't know how to say it. Like I have seen serious government handles getting into meme wars. Now, <laughs> sometimes they sound funny. They sound entertaining to the average person. But you, how much has, as you said, you know, governments are chaotic and there is always this sense of khichdi that is, you know, cooking inside behind the doors and people think everybody is this Machiavellian uh, or, or Kautelian, whichever side of the aisle you are. And, and you know, they are calculating every move and playing chess moves. But uh, in reality, human beings are just human beings. Like I always tell my friends, why do you assume, you know, human beings, I mean, on the, the other side of the aisle or this side of the aisle would be any different. Yes. But then how do we manage this? 
this element and i want to st- come to the uh, you know the role india will play in the multipolar world later on but how much do you think social media is going to have an impact on foreign relations in general no i mean there's a broader issue social media is one very important element of a broader information environment and that information environment has completely transformed over the so the, essentially the noise to signal ratio has gone up significantly there's much more noise and uh you know a lot of um uh, i i feel like i spend a lot of my time trying to find what is noise and what is irrelevant versus what is the signal what is the real messaging here and it it does sometimes confound me how people sometimes people who you would expect uh, better of sometimes get a uh, fall for some of the uh, signal over interpret decisions i mean uh, just in the last few years i feel like there've been decisions uh of apparent decisions made i find i mean not by the us by india others that um uh, are attributed to again to to something very uh, specific um you know i, I there've been a few moments where you know i i see commentary that uh, uh in india for example that something was a deliberate message sent by washington to you know to tell new delhi something and i know it's 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 actually because somebody uh messed up and you know some some staffer spoke out of turn some you know some junior person so uh, that's often there's often a very prosaic explanation for this but i think in this information environment you know we expected a world where information is more plentiful to make us more um uh better informed and the reality is that we are today i wouldn't say worse informed but we're certainly not always as well informed uh despite this uh, A, a huge tsunami of information that we get on a daily day-to-day basis uh so i think it has complicated the uh signal to noise ratio yeah i i couldn't agree more with you in fact i've always noticed this like i i jokingly tell my friends like life is so boring and normal and then you go on twitter <laughs> where all that is broken loose we're all going to die kind of a scenario what's going to happen yeah. so so i and i i think it equally applies to foreign policy and international relations but now okay now we are uh, obviously the underlying assumption is that we are in this multipolar world now uh, as india or as indians where where do you see india as a nation in this multipolar world and and uh, like how, what are the opportunities again how can we benefit and what what could be the potential threats that we might face as a nation then in this new reality well i, I would say actually we are in a at least for this maybe a, a short period but we are in a i would say more of a constrained bipolar world and maybe this is a transitional period but we're really in a i think in at least in the short term we're in a period of time where the us and china really are in a league of their own in terms of international influence and capabilities um and where everybody else may again be able to compete in some aspects of that of of not not but on across the board no so you know russia plays a major role still as a sort of defense supplier to countries europe plays a big role as a market um you know on par in sometimes greater you know as a regulatory power sometimes greater than the us or china but on across the board i don't think there's another actor that that uh, as of yet is you know maybe maybe india will get there 20 years from now but but 10 10 20 years from now but we're in a sort of more constrained bipolar world uh, although as i said complicated and where, so where does that place india again i i think sort of you have to from india's point of view you look at what are your interests what are the challenges to those interests uh, state non other non state actors internal actors and then where are partnerships where are where are ways you can actually leverage your position to improve your own position so that that i think is you know that's a sort of essential way of looking i think at the world um and i think you know if, if again if one were to, to 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 look at that where you know obviously india is a a rising power it's a growing economy it's a developing country um that puts it in a very strange position where again because it's a large country in some areas it it has capabilities that smaller countries at a similar development uh state of development don't have uh you know india can can afford to have um nuclear weapons and a large military and a defense industrial complex and uh, you know things that that a, a, a much smaller country with a 3000 roughly 3000 usd uh, per capita in, uh, gdp cannot have but on other areas of course it is a developing country and i think that that, that needs to be kept kept in in mind um in terms of challenges i think the 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 two major ones in terms of state actors uh, which are pakistan and china 
Um, and with Pakistan, I think, you know, in some ways it's becoming more manageable. It's not to say that the Pakistan isn't a challenge. It is, but it's the, the disparity is, is grown uh, in India's favor. Um, so today, you know, the, the, the Pakistani economy is smaller than that of Maharashtra, uh, one, one state of India. Uh, but it's still a potent, you know, it, it's a nuclear weapon state. It can cause India's problems, uh, and it does. Um, and India does need to push back and contest against that and defend itself against that. But the bigger challenge is China. Uh, and in some ways, I think if you look at most of India's international challenges, they sometimes come back to the question of China, whether it's its economy uh, and the massive trade deficit and, and sort of uh, unequal terms of economic engagement that have emerged, whether it's in India's near neighborhood where China's actions are actively undermining Indian interests in a variety of ways, whether it's in the broader balance of power in Asia and the Indo-Pacific where China, China's rise has created a sort of imbalance that India, along with its partners, is trying to uh, correct, um, whether it's the China-Pakistan relationship, uh, which has become more closer and China, you know, essentially China has supported Pakistan on many issues. Um, and in ways I think that are not even fully appreciated by many in India. Uh, and whether it comes to global governance, where China is actively, again, undermining Indian interests on, on international forums. So I think that this is the big, the, the single biggest challenge that India faces on the international stage today. And then when it comes to opportunities, I think it, it, it sort of really the rest of the world is India's oyster, right? So there are massive opportunities in the developing world uh, where India, again, by, by virtue of its position, can play a role in Africa, you know, whether it's as a model, whether it's as an aid provider now um, uh, or technical uh, provider of technical assistance. So in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, uh, West Asia, where India can play a more active role. And it, there's some there's been some forward progress, but a lot more can be done. Um, and then with, with the developing world, again, these are largely U.S. allies. Um, uh, again, they 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 uh, afford a number of uh, possibilities as well. The U.S., of course, European Union, Japan, Australia, uh, South Korea, um, Canada, and uh, and others. The one uh, a wrinkle in all of this is, I think, India still sees Russia as a partner. Um, and again, whether it's public opinion, you know, uh, if you ask, there've been several polls of, of what do Indians think of other countries, and amongst the major major international players, very high opinion of the U.S., public opinion of the U.S. in India, uh, Japan, Australia, but also Russia, um, and then there's a bit of a drop off, and then Europe. Uh, but I do think that you know, again, both the Indian public and policymakers do see, insofar as possible, uh, opportunities to engage with Russia. There are no intrinsic uh major differences although i think we have some tactical differences that have emerged whether it's on you know russia's position on afghanistan was frankly very unhelpful from india's point of view uh the russia china relationship even some of the russia pakistan engagement has not been um the the direction of that while it's still quite modest has not been very helpful so i think that 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 is broadly sort of the world i think we see today and whether india can use these partnerships to again maximize its own uh, well-being and position so, but uh, post the Ukraine-Russia conflict and how uh, the Western world, where uh, I'm not even thinking of Europe, but America in general has tried to pressurize different nations in different ways. Um, how much do you think this will fasten the process of this multilateral order going from a kind of a, a two-pole power journey that uh, the kind of a standoff right now between two major players but but uh, this this whole russia ukraine uh, uh, conflict uh, i think has created uh, uh, it uh, don't you think own sets of opportunities too for different players around the world it has in some ways uh, but look, I, I look at it this way which is i think also the us position i think uh, has changed a little bit so in the initial days and weeks of the conflict uh, in February, March, April of, of this year, the U.S. tried essentially uh, to sort of uh, use economic sanctions to to stop the conflict, right? And so it was to be as 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 hard hit Russia as hard and fast with sanctions as possible, and it succeeded in getting a lot of European and a few Asian countries on board. Uh, Singapore was a bit of a surprise. Switzerland was a bit of a surprise, but barring again those countries it really didn't have much success in the rest of the world. It didn't really get many developing countries to sign on, including India. So the initial reaction was, let's get as many countries to 
to to squeeze Russia economically as possible so that we can bring a short end to the conflict. That was the logic. But I think as it became clear that this would be a protracted conflict, the position has changed a little bit. And today, the U.S. government, at least, is not... Um, they may not be happy with what India's India's engagement with Russia, but they are certainly more understanding of it, and I think are, are willing to play the long game. And so, at least from the government, you're not seeing a lot of pressure anymore uh, for India to abide by um, um, uh, at least a sort of economic uh, sanctions, at least on certain kinds of goods, you know, energy and uh, um, energy, food, uh, certain essential uh, essential commodities. Um, other things that are on the sanctions list, I think, are slightly different matter, including things of a military or dual-use nature. So um, again, I think that, that understanding has has changed a, a little bit. But again, what opportunity? I mean, uh, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of things will change. I, I, I mean, my reading of it is that over the long run, this will hurt Russia much more. Again, I see certain. So, so, some commentary seeing like for some reason that this is boomeranged and and Europe and and the U.S. will will suffer more. Yes, there will be some pain. There is some pain this winter, particularly in Europe. But I think by by comparison, what we're seeing the the sort of attrition we're seeing in Russia, not just to the economy, but you know the cost of human lives, the morale, the the isolation. Over the longer this is drawn out, the more this will hurt Russia relative to the others. And you know, the the EU has an you know collective economy twelve times the size of Russia. It can take a much, take much more. Um, for India, I think the biggest opportunity is uh, from the conflict is really in its own defense industrial sector, which is for 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 two three decades it became very accustomed. India became very accustomed to a steady supply of defense imports from Russia. Uh, often to the detriment, you know, it was just easier to 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 uh, have another order of, name it, uh, whatever um, uh, defense articles, um, than to actually manufacture it at home, and that frankly was un unsustainable for any large. You know, in, there's no other large military in the world that is so import dependent as as India. So hopefully, this has served as a wake up call for India to both diversify, um, which was happening already, but diversify its sourcing. But more importantly, indigenize. Um, and today, and this I think is not again fully appreciated in many quarters in India. Today, it's no longer the export restrictions are the major obstacle. They, they, it is a it is a bit of an obstacle, but not as much as ten or twenty years ago. Today, the major obstacle is India's own ability to absorb uh, absorb the technology, and so that requires really uh, creating a long term reliability of investment at home. Uh, for uh, the public and private sector to invest in long-term defense industrial, uh, creating a long-term in defense industrial base. And I think that the war in some ways has created that opportunity uh, out of necessity. Yeah. So before we wrap it up, I, I just wanted to circle back. In fact, you know, in this multipolar world, actually, if you look at it, I mean, my background is basically philosophy. So I always find it fascinating that uh, in, in a very unique way, I think India could actually, from just from a values perspective, actually give a lot back to the world in, in this, at, at, in a multipolar world, because by the sheer you know, ability of our country and our culture to handle diversity for, for so many years, I mean, we, you know, uh, people often talk about diversity in America. And and uh, I mean, I'm not saying there is no diversity in America. I've lived there myself and I, and I visit it often. But like the volume of diversity, I think people don't realize the volume of diversity that we have in India. Just, just travel 200 kilometers on the left and right and you'll realize. So in a unique way, I, I'm hopeful that maybe this multipolar world uh, is actually good. And maybe India can actually offer... Uh, many solutions uh, at an epistemic level. I I, 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 ju I just thought I'll share my thoughts with you. I don't know no, whether I, you agree on No, no, I agree. I mean, and th th by the way, you know, I mean, I, I've, over the last two, three years, you know, we've set up, um, in some ways, the first uh, overseas Indian affiliated think tank in ORF America in, in Washington. And in some ways, what, what you said is, is a little bit behind the thinking behind that, right? Which is... Uh, India, in some ways, is quite unique. It is, you know, both the size, the scale. I mean, there are more people living under a democracy in India than in all G7 countries combined, right? Um, and uh, again, it's it's diverse, and you know, no one say. I, I don't think any country is perfect. India is not perfect. The U.S. is not perfect. Europe is not perfect. I've uh, I've lived in all of these places, 
but I, I do think there's certain things that advantages that uh, uh, that India and unique insights that India does bring to the table. One is, um, uh, you know, I think this question of uh, particularly a post-colonial democracy, right? So, you know, American uh, American diversity is very different, right? Which is it's an immigrant-heavy country. Um, it has its uh, it, it has its it has its historical challenges, but it also uh, and, and legacy issues. But it's uh, it's it's largely um, that diversity is driven by by immigration, and that's very different. From, you know, the U.S., Canada, Australia are like that, but that's very different from say a nation-state approach that Europe has taken, um, where a state is defined by a language and religion, uh, or at least originally it was. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, just give an example, to be a permanent resident of Germany, you have to take a German language exam. Uh, you, you know, you have to have proficiency. So there is a defining attribute for that nation state. Uh, same with Japan, same with, you know, um, same with South Korea. India brings is a very different case where you have that inherited diversity that is there within Indian borders. You have this multitude of languages and religions and and um, uh, identities. So that I think is one one thing that India brings to the table that is quite unique. Um, and again, for much of the developing world, there is no other model. Then you no, know, uh, uh, not to pick on any, but, you know, uh, a mid-sized African country is not going to look to the U.S. as a model for or, or Europe as a model. They they're dealing with their own internal uh, diversity. And so the closest model actually would be India uh, for that. Um, a second issue, I think, is also how to manage a developing economy in this world, where it will be some mix of market forces and market economies, but also with a role to some role to be played for the state. And I think we can, again, we can have healthy debates about where in that spectrum it should be or where, in what combination of uh, state, the role of the state uh, in, in in development versus the role of of the markets, but I think relying only on one or the other has proved a folly so far. Um, so to, to to give it, you know, where, what does this mean in concrete terms? You know, for example, looking at India's uh, digital governance backbone as a model for other countries. You know, whether it comes to digital payments, digital identification, but also the challenges associated with that, cybersecurity being one major one, uh, identity theft being another, you know, those, those issues. So these are areas where India is again at the vanguard of um, how to construct a developing economy, you know, how to advance a developing economy uh, in this day and age where you have some market uh, solutions uh, and private sector solutions. But are not it can't be overly reliant on that. Uh, but you have again also have some state solutions and can't be overly reliant on that either. Where you know like like China, where where things do finally come back come back to the party into the state. So I think that again India it, it, these are ways in which I think in a in a multipolar world where India can play a very important crucial role. I agree. Like I always like to say this that uh, Indian diversity is soul deep, and uh, the diversity the world often talks about is skin deep. And I think India India has something unique to offer. And I uh, I hope uh, ORF America actually contributes to that in its own way. Uh, Dhruva, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Uh, before we wrap it up, uh, uh, what would be the best place for people to go uh, and ch check your work out? I'm going to leave the, the website link in, in, the, in the description. But other than that, are there any specific areas you would want people to go and check uh, out? I mean, everything I do is on orfamerica.org. Uh, orfamerica.org. Um, so all publications, events that we organize um, uh, are there. Um, I, you know, I think what we try to do is we, we want to be engaged on four major issues, which are all interconnected, uh, which is essentially security, economic development, technology, and energy and climate. Um, and those, I think, are some of the, you know, the four sort of major issues uh, that we see, at least for India and, and the world, um, and the intersection. Uh, on the strategic side, I think engagement on Europe and Russia, on West Asia, Middle East, and on the Indo-Pacific, I think, will be important going forward. Those are areas that are. But again, on, on, on many of the other issues that I mentioned, energy, technology, I think the role of the developing world will be the crucial um, uh, place and where, again, India, India, the US in their own ways, and uh, again, other actors play very important roles. Yeah, I think I remember it. it uh... You did write about it in the Hindustan Times, if I if my memory serves it correctly, right? On technology, right? On, on yeah, a number of issues, but these are I think are some, you know what I mentioned. I think are some of the areas that you know I personally, but I think our organization, uh, 
my colleagues are very engaged on uh, and hopefully can contribute to both in terms of informing the broader public, but also informing policymakers. All right, uh, Dhruva, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you once again. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and uh, hopefully we'll have many more such conversations in the future. Thank you. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up once again in the description of the podcast. I'll leave all the links, whether it's through our Twitter handle, whether it's the link to ORF America or through our own website. Please go and check it out. Please follow him on Twitter. And as far as I'm concerned, you know the drill. Please subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel. Like this video. Leave the comments over there. Or support the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Audible, wherever you are. Or become a member on Patreon, Fanbo, or YouTube. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.